You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme... We will respond decisively to any aggression and we will hold responsible the people who attacked our troops. We'll do so at a time and a place of our choosing. Washington weighs up retaliatory options after Sunday's deadly drone attack on a US base. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan is sentenced to 10 years in jail after being accused of leaking state secrets. Also ahead... I am pleased to report that the party executive has now endorsed the proposals that I have put to them. After almost two years without government, power sharing is set to return to Northern Ireland, but with Republican Party Sinn Féin in charge for the first time. Plus the latest business news and is the department store an endangered species? All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan has been sentenced to 10 years in jail in a case in which he was accused of leaking state secrets. Khan, who was ousted from power in 2022, is already serving a three-year jail term after being convicted of corruption. Khan has branded all charges against him as politically motivated. Samira Shackle is a journalist and the author of Karachi Vice, Life and Death in a Contested City. Samira, thank you for joining us. Firstly, can you give us some background on what Khan was actually accused of doing? Yeah, so the most recent uh, charges are uh, relate to an appearance at a rally in March 2022. So this was just a month before Imran Khan was ousted from power in a vote of no confidence in parliament. So at that rally, he appeared on stage and he was waving a piece of paper and he said it showed that there was a foreign conspiracy against him. Uh, and it's that piece of paper that is the the basis of, of the charges on which he's been sentenced just now. Um, the prosecutions say that his actions at that rally amounted to leaking a classified document and damaging diplomatic relations, which are, are very serious crimes. And he was obviously using this document as a prop at that rally. But could people actually decipher the text or did he read from it or anything? No, what he said was, um, he said it detailed all will be forgiven if Imran Khan is removed from power. Um, So implying that a foreign country was conspiring with the powers that be in Pakistan to to remove him. He didn't name the country, although he then went on to to be extremely critical of the United States around the time that he was ousted from from power. He sort of separately alleged that the United States was behind it. Uh, so no, it wasn't. And the the sub the the actual contents of that piece of paper haven't been made public yet. Um, and it's also worth noting that the the proceedings um, uh, in which he was sentenced were quite secretive. A special court was convened actually in the jail where he's being held, as you mentioned, on corruption charges already, uh, rather than being held in open court. Um, and the media weren't allowed access, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's not um, certainly not been held in if the full view of the public and the media. And do we know what kind of defence he mounted in the case? Uh, well, the the we know that his lawyers have said that it's uh, politically motivated, that they've asked for it to be held in open court, uh, and that they basically that they don't accept the decision. So I think a lot of the 
public statements around it have been that this is basically a, a sort of pretext to prevent um, Imran Khan from standing in the forthcoming election. And it's part of a a wider campaign of legal harassment, um, which is not is is not unfounded. I mean, it's worth also noting that he's got 150 separate charges against him at the moment, different cases that he's constantly having to kind of appear and be bailed on and contest and so on. So it's, it's part of a kind of big um, mass of, of legal problems. Mm. And what are the conditions that he's currently being held in like? And will this sentence be uh, a sentence that follows on or is it going to be simultaneously applied? Uh, that's a good question, actually. I'm not sure if it's going to follow on or be simultaneously applied. I know that the, the corruption charges that he's currently serving was a three-year jail term, which was subsequently suspended, um, which means that you can serve it outside of jail. However, he wasn't actually released from jail because this um, more serious charge um, around leaking a classified document, kind of these charges came up almost immediately. So he was then retained in jail, despite the fact that the, the three-year sentence had been suspended. I'm not entirely sure if it's... Um, simultaneous or consecutive but i know that it certainly is his lawyers have indicated that they will be seeking to appeal it um and appeal it outside of this sort of special court that was convened within the prison they'll want to be contesting it in Mm. um a a sort of proper established court imran khan is someone that sort of transcends uh politics in pakistan you know he was a national figure cricketing hero before (laughs) entering into uh the world of uh you know uh, politics but what's the reaction being like across pakistan I think that there's a sense, and and this has been, you know, this isn't necessarily new. This is just the latest in a series of um, of, of charges and so on uh, since he was ousted from power uh, last April. So I think there's a sense amongst his supporters of, of real anger at the fact they're being vilified. Um, there's a sense, uh, I think, you know, we've seen actually over the course of the last um, kind of eight ten months or so since he since he was ousted and just before mass protests by his um supporters supporters of his his part of his party the pti um but i think more broadly among the electorate there's a sense of um uh sort of apathy maybe in induced by this because even if you're not a pti supporter uh i think there's uh a real lack of trust in the election process and the idea that it's going to be free and fair. I mean, even if you're not a PTI supporter, it's quite easy to see that there there is quite a sustained campaign against Khan, his party. There's been various different mechanisms by which the parties are being prevented from campaigning on an equal footing. Um, And so I think there's, on the one hand, quite intense anger from PTI supporters who are quite, um, they're sort of labelled in Pakistan or seen as... um, having a propensity towards violent protest, his supporters, I think partly because because a lot of his supporters are generally young, big groups of young men, and there's sort of sense of, of, of sort of ang- that angry energy in his protest, rightly or wrongly. Um, so there's that. And then there's also this sort of broader, I think it contributes to what's uh, been growing for many years, this sort of sense of, of apathy and disengagement from the system. Samira, thank you. Now here's Emma Searle with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Israel's military said it killed three gunmen in a hospital in the West Bank who had been planning a terror attack. One of the men was a member of Hamas and two were claimed by an allied militant group, Islamic Jihad. 
French farmers have blocked key motorways into Paris as part of an ongoing protest over pay, regulations and living conditions. Authorities say 15,000 police have been mobilized to stop tractors entering the French capital. And Toyota sold more cars than any other automaker in 2023, topping its rivals for a fourth consecutive year. The Japanese firm sold a record 11 million vehicles globally, up more than 7% from the previous year. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Emma. The United States is weighing its options following a deadly drone attack that killed three U.S. service members over the weekend. President Biden, who called the attack despicable and wholly unjust, has vowed to respond. But for some lawmakers in Congress, that's not enough. And as H.J. Meyer reports, the attack on U.S. soldiers has added another level of complexity to an already fragile situation in the Middle East. The Pentagon yesterday released the names of the three U.S. soldiers killed by an overnight drone strike in Jordan on Sunday. U.S. officials have blamed Iran-backed militias for the deadly attack that also injured dozens of others, and they are now planning their next course of action. We will respond decisively to any aggression. And we will hold responsible the people who attacked our troops. We'll do so at a time and a place of our choosing. That's U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking during a joint press conference with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg in Washington on Monday. The strike, which is believed to be the deadliest attack on U.S. military personnel since 2021, could draw the U.S. into a direct conflict with Iran. And that's something neither Washington nor Tehran want, says Sina Azodi. I don't believe that uh, Iran or the forces that have been uh, connected to Iran are interested in um, having a confrontation with the U.S. Azodi, who's an adjunct professor focusing on U.S.-Iran relations at George Washington University, believes that President Biden should opt for a measured response, but a response nonetheless. Three American uh, service members have been killed, and, and he needs to respond. But the kind of response that he will uh, give would very much uh, determine another confrontation in the region, meaning that it has the potential to escalate in a wider uh, confrontation. Complicating the decision to retaliate are the political pressures at home. Biden is preparing for a potentially taxing re-election campaign, and more conflicts around the world could hurt his chances. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby forcefully pushed back against the notion that politics plays any role in the president's decision-making. He's not looking at political calculations or the polling or the electoral calendar as he works to protect our troops ashore and our ships at sea. And any suggestion to the contrary is offensive. At the same time, Republicans in Congress and even some Democrats are now publicly criticizing the administration's approach toward Iran and its proxies. Here's Florida Congressman Mike Waltz during an appearance on Fox News. They're in a proxy war with us. Uh, They are unleashing their militias, not just on Israel, but on us and on global shipping through the Houthis. And they've gotten the message loud and clear that they can get away with it. And not only can they get away with it, uh, that to the extent we do respond, it'll be feckless. Iran-backed militia groups such as the Houthis or Hezbollah have launched at least 165 attacks since the start of the war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. The goal is to drive the U.S. away, says Saudi. Iran's uh, strategic goal is to force the United States out of the region. 
uh, make so much trouble for the U.S. that the cost of staying in the Middle East would outweigh its benefits of staying in the region. Despite all of the potential risks associated with any retaliatory action, the administration is clear on its goal to defend U.S. troops and respond to the latest attack, says Blinken. We do not seek conflict uh, with Iran. We do not seek war with Iran. But we have and we will continue to defend our personnel and to take every action necessary uh, to do that. That response could well be uh, multi-leveled. Uh, it could come in stages and it could uh, be sustained over time. For Monocle, I'm H.J. Mai in Washington. H.J. Mai, thank you. You're listening to Monocle Radio. This is The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Japan and Australia have joined a growing number of countries that have halted funding to the largest UN agency operating in Gaza as the crisis deepens over the alleged role of some of its staff in the October 7th attack. The United States, the United Kingdom and Italy were among those that had already paused funding following an Israeli intelligence dossier alleging that hundreds of UNRWA workers are Hamas or Islamic Jihad operatives, with 12 of them having crossed into Israel in the October 7th attack, which killed 1,300 and led to 250 hostages being taken. UNRWA has sacked nine of those employees and says it is investigating, but that the aid situation is extremely desperate in Gaza now. Shana Lowe of the Norwegian Refugee Council joins us from Jerusalem. Shana, thank you for coming on the show. Firstly, can you give us an update on the aid situation in Gaza now and how critical UNRWA's work normally is? Well, the aid situation remains extremely dire in Gaza. So many people are in need. Millions of people are in need. 2.3 million civilians are trapped inside Gaza. 1.7 million of them are displaced. And around a million of those people, displaced people, are living in UNRWA shelters or in the periphery of those UNRWA shelters and reliant on aid that's given to them by UNRWA. Currently, UNRWA is responsible for distributing somewhere around 80% of the aid that's reaching Palestinians in Gaza. This aid, of course, is nowhere near enough. And so the to think about the suspension of aid and the impact that that would have on an already dire situation, it, it would just be catastrophic. And what's been the impact on UNRWA so far, as it has not been felt yet? For now, UNRWA is, oper- as far as I know, UNRWA is operating as as normal. What my understanding is that they've announced that they would have to begin suspending operations uh, by the end of February uh, if the if the suspension of these funds continues. Do you think UNRWA failed somewhat in its due diligence on this, as some have claimed? Uh, you know. Uh, it's it's I don't know all about UNRWA's internal processes, but my understanding is that UNRWA regularly shares its employees' names with all of the host countries um, and with Israel uh, of its staff members, and that as soon as UNRWA learned of these allegations, they immediately took action, fired the employees um, who were still alive, and and um, and 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 started an independent investigation. I think that that's appropriate action to be taken. But it seems um, it's shocking, really, that that uh, international countries at such a dire time 
would suspend aid when so many people are in need and so few of UNRWA's employees were allegedly involved in these acts and were acting not as UNRWA employees, but rather as uh, in their own personal capacity. Hmm. But the international community now, uh, they have other things that they can do perhaps to circumvent UNRWA to ensure aid gets uh, to where it needs to go whilst this investigation is being carried out. What is it that they could do instead? You know, it's uh, there's talk about trying to give additional funds to other humanitarian agencies, but the reality is that that UNRWA's operation is so large in Gaza that that it would be incredibly difficult for other agencies to try and fill that void, let alone the other places that UNRWA is operating outside of Gaza, where they essentially are the municipalities in in refugee camps in the West Bank, uh, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, where they provide everything from schooling to medical care and facilities to uh, to trash collection. These are this, these are huge gaps that it would be very difficult, particularly in such a short amount of time, for for other humanitarian agencies to to step into that space and and fill it. And are other agencies and and charities and organizations now as well having to look uh, at their own staff in case there are any more accusations like this leveled? You know, I can't speak to, to, again, to what other organizations do. We at the Norwegian Refugee Council vet our employees. We vet uh, the people that we are, the the partners and, and other organizations that we work with. This is something that's done regularly. For 15 years, uh, NRC has been operating inside of Gaza, and we've never had any issues um, around our employees. Uh, but I, I imagine that that other organizations are, are fearful that that suspensions could happen and and are taking care to make sure, do their due diligence and make sure that that staff aren't engaged in in, um, criminal and violent acts. And just finally, there is uh, talk that negotiations are underway potentially for a ceasefire as long as 30 days. If you do manage to get that break uh, in the conflict, how beneficial would that be for your organisation and others to try and get things back to a somewhat livable state uh, for those in Gaza? Well, it's not just about having a 30-day pause in, in hostilities. What we really need is a sustained permanent ceasefire uh, because 30 days will not be enough to address the the desperate needs of, of 1.7 million people displaced. Over 70% of housing in Gaza is damaged or destroyed. Uh, the shelter cluster, which we lead, estimates that, it, that under current circumstances, it will take just three years uh, just to clear away the rubble. Um, caused from so much of this destruction and 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 think about rebuilding. So what we really need to be pushing for uh, beyond just a short-term pause is really a, a permanent ceasefire. But what a pause would do is enable agencies to access parts of Gaza that have been inaccessible or, or minimally accessible for so many weeks of, hus- of sustained hostilities, particularly in the north where aid agencies are struggling to reach people there and provide them with with um, medicine, food and clean water. Shane, hello. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. (laughs) 
Well, to Northern Ireland now, which has long been held up as the model for the post-conflict society. The Good Friday Agreement, signed in 1998, brought an end to the troubles and relative peace ever since. However, a key pillar of the project was a power-sharing executive in Belfast, so the UK constituent nation could, in effect, run its own internal affairs. But things haven't gone smoothly, with power-sharing collapsing for extended periods due to policy squabbles and Brexit. Recently, reopening old wounds and divides, the Democratic Unionist Party, which, as the name suggests, wants to maintain union with the United Kingdom, started boycotting devolved power-sharing government nearly two years ago, purportedly in protest against trade arrangements after the UK left the EU. That's led to huge problems for Northern Ireland citizens, as key decisions have been left in the doldrums. But overnight, there was finally news of a breakthrough. This package, I believe, safeguards Northern Ireland's place in the Union and will restore our place within the UK internal market. It will remove checks for goods moving within the UK and remaining in Northern Ireland and will end Northern Ireland automatically following future EU laws. That was Geoffrey Donaldson, leader of the Democratic Unionist Party. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Ben Kelly, an audience editor for Newsweek. Uh, ben, thank you for coming on the show. Just for background, what has it meant for people in Northern Ireland to have been effectively left without government for the past two years? Good afternoon. Yeah, it has not been great for people in Northern Ireland. Um, there are many local and devolved decisions that haven't been made, things that haven't progressed. And I think most notably, there have been um, pay rises that were in the pipeline for public sector workers that were kind of um, bottlenecked by the lack of a devolved government. And that kind of came to a head with big strikes in recent weeks. Um, So there is all of that. But at the same time, the people of Northern Ireland have become a little bit used to doing without government. It's a little bit of fatigue. They see it coming. It happens more times than not sometimes. Um, So people have been very frustrated. They will be seeing a glimmer of hope today. Yeah, people in Northern Ireland getting paid sometimes thousands less than colleagues uh, in the rest of the United Kingdom. You mentioned that big strike there. Now, I mentioned uh, that the DUP were unhappy with the post-Brexit arrangement, a decision they backed strongly, despite Northern Ireland voting the strongest of all four nations against Brexit. But was this more about Sinn Féin, a Republican party who would like the reunification of Ireland and Northern Ireland, taking the top position in the executive for the first time? So this is a very big question. You know, if you cast your mind back to 2022, that was the year that uh, Sinn Féin topped the poll for the first time in Northern Ireland, but they did not get to take uh, that position because almost immediately uh, the DUP decided they were going to pull down the institutions um, in protest of the fact that the Brexit, which, as you say, they rightly wanted, actually treated Northern Ireland very differently, left it within the EU single market and so on, and they demanded a different deal from the UK government, which the UK government claimed they succeeded with in the Windsor framework that was last March. Um, And then the DUP said, no, we'd still like more again, and nothing really has changed between now and then, except for the DUP have kind of run out of rope. Um, People do believe that perhaps some of it is because the DUP just didn't want to go back into a power sharing government where they were no longer the top dog. That really is a matter of opinion. Um, I guess we'll see soon enough because if they do go back in, which could be as early as this weekend, um, they're going to be taking position number two. 
And so what is actually in this deal that they've claimed to have reached overnight? Or did they simply just, you know, finally fold and and just try and get on with things in the face of uh, bad electoral math for them? Well, we don't know yet because they have not shared it with us. But it seems to be some indication that the UK government will legislate in order to remove checks on goods that move from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, but which are not going onwards into the single market and therefore don't need to be treated differently. Um, How it will differ from that Windsor framework of last year, who really knows? It may be just a fig leaf to allow the DUP to go back in. Um, The EU Commission has come out this lunchtime and said, you know, we'll wait and see what we think of this when we hear it. Of course, they've got to agree to it, as do the DUP, and as do those hardline Tory Brexiteers who will not want to see Rishi Sunak giving any sort of softening of rules between the UK and the EU. It's a very delicate balance. But I would imagine when we see the deal, nothing much has changed in the past sort of year of negotiations, except that it's just time for the DUP to to call it quits and say, we've done our best, we give up. And it seems as though it's been within their own ranks uh, and the unionist community that this has been the most problematic. Do you think that the DUP, uh, you know, they haven't always been the sort of uh, dominant unionist party, things things tend to oscillate a bit. Uh, but do you think that they're facing a bit of a challenge at the next election? And where does this leave Sinn Féin now as it sort of takes the reins for the first time? I think before we even get to the next election, the DUP have a huge issue on its hands here. As you said, in the past, the biggest party was the Ulster Unionists. They sort of split over the Good Friday Agreement and the DUP overtook them as being much more hardline. What you're having here is almost the same thing happening. The DUP are split on this issue. Unionists are split on this issue as to whether to accept the Brexit deal or not. And what you might find is there might be hardliners within the DUP who might try and scupper this deal. They might try and supplant Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. They may even try to break away, but it's only going to be at the detriment of unionism. I mean, you had chaotic scenes last night where someone, the BBC are reporting, someone was actually wearing a wire at that high level meeting of the DUP and allowing a live feed to go out and be live tweeted by a high profile um unionist blogger who was very against any sort of softening at all. It was chaotic scenes and it kind of spoke to just how much the DUP has disintegrated as what was once a party of of discipline and, and skill. They really are, you know, all over the floor on this one and it's going to be a slow climb back up. And you're quite right, when it next comes to the polls, they really have to fight hard. Ben, thank you very much. That was Newsweek's Ben Kelly. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Well, we're going to finish uh, the programme today with a look at some business news. I'm going to focus in particular on one sector. That is, of course, the theme from Are you, uh, you are, are you Being Served? The department store was once a bastion of the premier shopping streets in cities across the world. But increasingly, the model is failing, with famous names disappearing and others being bought up for their real estate. Bloomberg's Ewan Potts joins us now from Dubai. Uh, Ewan, there's a lot going on in this sector right now, isn't there? Uh, are You Being Served? That was a classic, wasn't it? Yeah, another classic that is... Uh, filing for insolvency in Berlin, the Car Devey department store. It's been there since 1907. The name uh, roughly translates as Department Store of the West. It's, it says it's been forced to apply for bankruptcy to uncouple from the high rents it's having to pay. 
Now, the Berlin department store, it's got a couple of others around the uh, country as well. Its rents have gone up by 37% over the last six years. It says its stores are operating uh, healthily. The rental burdens, though, are harming profitability. In fact, last year it reported its highest sales ever. The the group's actually owned by a Thai conglomerate, but it says it's been unable to reach an, an agreement on store rents due to the intransigent position of its landlords. I think this really plays into a couple of themes. Obviously, the upheaval and the massive structural changes we've seen in retailing, but it also plays into the story of Berlin itself. Berlin, uh, unusually for a capital city, is a relatively poor city within Germany. Uh, most capital cities are the wealthiest parts of their countries, but Berlin, for obvious reasons, is not. And in fact, 10 or 15 years ago, it was really a very cheap city. Rents were very low and there were lots of places to live and plenty of shops to rent. But as Berlin has boomed, uh, it's a really fun place. It's attracted a lot of young people. Uh, so many people have moved into the city that rents have really rocketed. If you ask anybody uh, trying to find a flat in Berlin, it's not easy. They do have rent control, uh, which means that people who have control rents are paying a, a reasonable price. But anybody uh, wanting a, a new flat has to pay surging prices. And that's also crimped the supply of new residential property. Interesting, this is also spilling over now into the retail market. When you have a boom city, uh, landlords uh, understandably want to extract as much money as possible. And uh, even uh, a department store as iconic as Cardeve uh, is saying that it can't cope with these these, these rent increases. And I mean, it feels like it's something that if it goes, no one's ever going to try and rebuild these companies because you know, they are great if you go to a good department store. They are amazing. But to set something up like it now, it just seems pretty impossible. And we're seeing here in the UK too, aren't we, with John Lewis, which is effectively the last remaining department store chain and in America with Macy's, uh, that they're just completely struggling. Yeah, they are. And I think you're quite right that if we, you would not invent them now. Of course, they really go back to the time when it was convenient to pop into one shop and you could buy anything that you needed. But of course, we now have Amazon for that uh, uh, and other online retailers. And of course, it is the story of online, which is really uh, done for these guys. Uh, I think the interesting trends happening in, in retail, there's been a real shift over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, the middle market has struggled so much. There are many discounters at the bottom end who've done okay, and some of the top end are thriving. And there are niche retailers who are doing very nicely. But this uh, mass of shops in the middle are really struggling to compete with online. And we've seen so many changes. And department stores have been particularly hard hit because they are very large. They have very high rent bills. Uh, and when your footfall declines and a lot of people pop in and have a nice look around, uh, spend half an hour in there, and then end up not buying anything, perhaps they go home and buy it online uh, back at their computer. So you just cannot continue paying those massive rents when your sales are declining. So department stores... Uh, have been really struggling. And as you mentioned, a couple of names there. Macy's uh, recently turned down a uh, takeover offer of $6 billion, uh, saying that it didn't offer compelling value. We'll see if that plays out with a higher bid uh, in the next few weeks. And and I mentioned you mentioned the report in The Guardian as well from John Lewis, as you say, a staple uh, of the British High Street. They're cutting or considering cutting 11,000 jobs. They've already shut 16 department stores across the UK and uh, several supermarkets. Uh, so that really plays into this theme of department stores really, really struggling. Ewan Potts, thank you for joining us. 
And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Nioma Ikwe, and our studio manager was Christy O'Grady. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and review. And if you want to get in touch with us about anything, then email me on vincent at, so vm at monocle.com. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye, and thank you for listening. 